Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. And I'll be here until six this evening, two more weeks to that Radiothon. Today, Them, a new play by Samar Sabawi, who's a Palestinian, Canadian, Australian playwright. Environmental issues with Neil Blake from the Eco Centre at St Kilda, and he's also the Port Phillip Baykeeper. Many Pacific issues with Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, and we travel to the US to talk to Sean Reynolds from the US Flotilla for Gaza, and he's from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. But first, let's hear from Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when pure coincidence, out for my morning walk the other day, I just happened to run into Socialist Party Supremo until yesterday and until a recent event would be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten ambition, looking very forlorn, but with Chloe still gazing lovingly. Uh, morning, little Billy. Chloe, uh, why are you kicking that large bag so angrily, little Billy? It's already full of holes. That's why I'm so angry with it. I had the election in it. I had the election in the bag, and I had so much trouble balancing it, I didn't notice it had split, and the contents were trailing behind me. Oh, what bad luck. Bad luck's putting it mildly. It's a tragedy. Poor little Billy. He, he's one consolation. He'll now go down in history as the answer to the occasional trivia question. The man who outdid John Euston. And at least it was a huge brown paper bag, good for the environment, and the only plastic to be seen was little Billy himself. Oh, and Chloe's smile. The socialists have already begun the post-mortem, deciding too late what was their big, big primary mistake. We made the mistake of uh, having a policy. New Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all won't be easy analysed, indicating we're in for three years of out-of-control radical policy. And especially, Anthony pondered, suggesting there is the big end of town, that landlords and shareholders are ripping off, that fossils may be a bit of a problem for the planet, that evil unions and workers have both hands tied behind their backs. But thankfully, we can now expect policy-free, policy-free policy, and an admission that there is no such thing as class struggle, something they should have learned from our recently deceased great and beloved former big supremo nuclear hawk himself, who as a true socialist realised caring employers and lazy avaricious workers have common interests, equal interests, symbiotic interests. The socialists are looking at what won the election for Scuttle them and the team and plan to adopt those tactics, making the choice in three years even more diverse. The best news arising out of the election is that shares in almost every sector of the delicate flower that is the economy have soared, showing how fragile the delicate flower is that little Billy was seen as a threat. He certainly proved a threat to the Socialist Party. Admitted last week, a pain stabbed at my heart at the tragic loss of former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, a tragedy for satire, but that at least we still have Constable Peter Duffer and Barnacle. 
Well, after a typical Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin balanced article by a regular columnist which praised Constable Duffer for winning the election, mainly because he challenged former Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull, allowing Scuttlebin to become Big Supremo, rather damned with fate, I would have thought. But anyway, the Wapping Sin's usual array of deep-thinking readers flooded the letters column in agreement, with first place going to Cruno with a very simple message. That's what it said, Cruno, K-R-U-N-O. Peter Duffer was the hero that we needed. God bless him. Well said, Cruno. You, you can't get much simpler than that. Although Daniel's considered contribution is worth a mention, even though he was trying to praise Constable Duffer. It was all a bit like a zombie movie, he opened, and I thought that captured Constable Duffer perfectly, almost spot on. On another positive note, just when we thought we'd lost Parliament's favourite, a favourite lover of train killing and a bit of slaughter and destruction, Jim Morlam, tossed into an unwinnable number four on the caring business class and hayseed and cheap shit ticket, looks like he's back with another favourite, Arthur Sins of Dunas, being sent off to Washington as ambassador, and Jim back in the Senate to advocate a bit of train-killing slaughter, accompanied by his deep analysis and advice on how to massacre the bad guys. And just when we thought we'd lost Karangamite casualty Sarah Henderson, Henderson gone, she's just as soon not gone, she's back with another senator being packed off to New York as ambassador to the UN of the US of the UN of the world. What luck for Jim and Sarah. Thank goodness it's not a socialist government, so we won't hear screams and anger at jobs for the girls and boys, at favouritism, at being the puppets of evil union bosses. Just hope Arthur doesn't get lost on the way to Washington, that he's recovered his memory, because we were all so concerned about his mind when he appeared at that corruption inquiry over, over events when he was caring business class party treasurer, and he couldn't for the life of him remember where all this money had come from and who stuffed it in the paper bags or any other details about the matters being investigated. Poor Arthur's memory was in tatters. Having mentioned Jim Morlam, in the interests of sabre-rattling world peace, the US of the UN of the US of the world has now levelled 18 new charges against Julian Assange for, 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 well, let's ask John Belt up on Big Supremo Donald Trump or the Paul's advisor on train killing and slaughter for peace. Uh, John, what has he done that deserves a possible death sentence? The treasonable crime of exposing U.S. of war crimes, so-called war crimes, when everyone knows the U.S. of does not commit war crimes. Why, we can't even be charged with war crimes. That, that's the law. The War Crimes Act, the War Crimes Law, right, John? U.S. of law is part of our U.S. of world law. Imagine the distress for those brave young men and women in uniform, cream of U.S. of youth trained killers, stressed out knowing everyone in the country they are liberating could be the bad guys, letting off a bit of steam, taking pot shots at civilians from their peace chopper, nothing more than the reality version of an amusement parlor game, and this evil criminal who deserves to die tells the whole world and much, much more. 
and he's also costing our legal system, costing the American people by refusing to come here like a man and face a fair trial. When John puts so reasonable an argument, we do have to be critical of Assange for refusing to face a fair trial, like his co-conspirator Chelsea Manning faced a fair trial and was given a lenient 35 years, eventually pardoned by the previous big supremo, and now, as far as I know, locked up again in solitary confinement for, uh, for, well, for, uh, John, John! Oh, he's gone. Sorry, sorry. And that reality of which Nuclear Hawk made us aware that caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers have common symbiotic interests has been spotlighted since the caring business class hayseed and cheap shit party's re-election. Indeed, in an interview with longtime socialist activist Dave Kerrin on City Limits last Wednesday, I concluded by commenting that the government's relentless campaign to wrest all that lovely, lovely super money from evil unions and workers and hand it to its mates, the respectable bankers and good, responsible financial institutions, would accelerate. So, surprise, surprise, two days later, Friday, Trublawashi Capitalist Review, P1 Kicker, Retail Funds, Consumer Groups versus Unions. Then, big headline, Push to Curb Industry Superpower. Retail funds pushing the government to change the rules, changes that would erode the advantages enjoyed by union-influenced industry funds, it said. Unfair advantages like not ripping off and believing the workers whose money it is should get that money. But we've known for years as the caring business class and their caring business class puppets of sorry, sorry, parliamentarians, tell us industrial relations is weighted too much toward the evil unions, that it must be brought back to the sensible centre. And my word, the caring employers are certainly working on that post-haste. They're certainly changing the rules as the unions called for. Predictions the evil construction unions will now receive record penalties costing billions as numerous pending cases hit the jackboots commission, many to do with costly crippling demands like safety, as simultaneously massive increases in fines come into effect, 210,000 per charge for evil unions, 42 grand per individual, and there are 817 alleged contraventions about to hit the courts, while the new caring business class relations minister, Christian Potom, says he will take a hard line on construction unions. So obviously those 210 and 42 grand penalties are not hard line. The 817 alleged contraventions, not nearly enough. Caring employers also say they want changes to make the fair work true Blawazi, no longer work choices, just looks like a commission more efficient. Perhaps they slap it themselves because the last 20 appointments to the con mission, in the interests of balance, have all come from the caring employer's side. And there are eight more appointments coming up shortly for Christian and the government to make it even more balanced. But to show how removed from reality those ivory tower academics can be, this academic from RMIT says the government has no mandate to attack unions brackets, my brackets, even more, because reviewing all this was not announced. Christian put him in his place. There was no need to announce it. Everyone knows we hate evil unions. And of course, we can trust anyone called Christian. 
Finally, the big hope for evil unions and workers out of all this is that new Socialist Party Supremo Albo, as they call him, agrees with Nuclear Hawk. Unions and businesses have common interests in a strong economy, he mused, which is certainly a promising start. That should cheer up the unions no end. Good afternoon. And that's Mr Kevin Healy, and I don't think I really need to give him a plug for City Limits tomorrow at 9. I think he's already done it. I've been joined by Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre and the Port Phillip Baykeeper. Neil, one of the major issues in the world is plastics. What are we doing about it and what should we be doing about it? I guess there's, yeah, there's big movements uh, on around the, around the globe, really, and uh, some pretty um, groundbreaking moves in, in Europe, for example, to go plastic-free. Interesting times in Timor-Leste, too, where they're actually uh, entering into a new plant that will actually put plastics back into oils with the aim of uh, making their seascapes and landscapes plastic-free. So that's fantastic stuff. There needs to obviously, though, be the... Uh, community support for those sort of things too and you know not just take it for granted and think oh, I don't have to play my part you know because everyone who's using plastic has to actually you know, make sure it gets put into the right place and to be recycled reused or whatever yeah there's a range of different um, contributors to the solution I suppose and not just this sort of silver bullet that's going to work without all parties playing their part and it's not just the land where we're seeing the fires where they're being stored illegally or legally, it's the oceans and they're the, that, that's the area who is most affected because of the area of the oceans. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we saw uh, recently, just in the last week or so, about the guy who went diving down into the Mariana Trench and found plastic bags down there, you know, so I think that's something like 11 kilometres underneath the ocean surface. So it's got to all points in, in, the, in the world, in all environments. So clearly we've got to stop using a lot of the stuff in the first place consumption is really the the big challenge and getting people to understand that their little bit which might not seem to matter uh, in the bigger picture from their perspective but it all contributes to the problem you couldn't imagine this 30 40 years ago well i mean i suppose you could that it would end up like this it's been probably difficult to envisage um, that long ago just the scale of world population, which ultimately is the big contributor, and I did think that uh, that's the elephant in the womb, Jan. Uh, so <laughs> we really need to uh, have a think about, you know, can the planet and the environment, even with the best of will and intentions, continue to sustain uh, the population increases that uh, we've seen over, over the last 30 years? Uh, it's a massive increase and it's, that's only going to continue unless we have different cultural perspectives and understandings of just what can this planet actually hold. And we have to have alternatives to plastic. What are they? There are various um, products um, from rice husks and uh, things like that, you know, that are actually part of our food production systems that can be uh, used to make containers and utensils and things. So I'm not an expert on that sort of stuff, but, you know, I would just say that we've, everyone needs to really reconsider whether they actually need to use a lot of stuff that's simply single use. And, you know, if it is single use, well, the old saying, there's no excuse. You know, unless it's some sort of medical emergency, 
we really shouldn't be even producing those products in the first place. So we've got to move towards a product stewardship system where every everything that's being produced, manufactured, has to go through a checklist of whether or not the materials are recyclable and whether the systems are in place for that to occur. And if not, don't make it. And is that happening anywhere? Not to my knowledge. I mean, there's some moves, like we have product stewardship provisions in the federal um, government in Australia, but it really only talks about one or two products at this stage. You know, we need a, a product stewardship commission or a council that actually is a filter for everything that's considered to be manufactured to make sure that there's an oversight of those things that are being uh, manufactured and distributed into the community to make sure that uh, they are all in a loop so there's a cycle that uh, everything goes through rather than just going into the ocean. And it's not just the government's responsibility, it's everybody's responsibility. that's exactly right and uh, we can't expect governments to solve a problem unless they've got community support, you know, and, and genuine uh, commitment to, to uh, their solutions. So there has to be um, bipartisan as well, so not just sort of political sniping. But, yeah, coming from all sectors, so industry has to play a part, local governments, all, all levels of government and, and community. Well, you're working within and without the water working life. What are you seeing now? Round in the rivers, round in Port Phillip Bay? Yeah, well, I guess the bay is a pretty um, interesting thing and it's possibly had a big influence on my thinking because it is a relatively enclosed system, a waterway. And uh, so in that sense, it could be a sink that we're just putting stuff into from the catchments, not only uh, plastics and other sort of organic materials, but also... um, contaminants as well you know so for example the dredging maintenance dredging that's occurring in the Yarra and the Maribyrnong which took place uh, just a couple of months ago those um, silts that are coming out of there would actually have contaminants in them we we know that there's no argument to question about that and they the state of the art the way we do it these days is to, to dispose of that in the bay and you know the question is how much longer do we think we can keep doing that without actually having a detrimental impact on the ecology. Well, they did that 100 years ago, didn't they? Yeah, they did. But, you know, again, that was in the days when there were not so many people and there weren't so many contaminants. And, you know, so we've got to come to a a working reality with the scale of uh, population and a, a genuine assessment of what the risks are if we continue with those old practices. Can't continue to be forever. Is that dredging necessary in your view? Oh, well, I guess they need to maintain sort of uh, the working function of the, of the rivers and enabling uh, vessels to get through. So, uh, How far up do, are they dredging? In the Maribyrnong, uh, not that far. Uh, probably just, just in that section next to Cood Island. So uh, uh, there's vessels that come into that section there. So, But in those lower reaches of the river, though, that's where a lot of the silts that are containing contaminants are actually deposited. Is there any compliance for those dredging operations? Well, that's a good question. There are notices to mariners, you know, that uh, there's going to be dredging operations, so, you know, the boating community is uh, advised of what's going on. The question is, you know, which I have in the back of my mind, is that when the channel deepening dredging occurred and there were 3 million cubic metres of contaminated silts taken from the river, the Yarra, they were placed in a bunded area 
in Port Phillip Bay, in around about 20 kilometres south of Williamstown. The approach there was that that was all going to be okay because they'd placed it within this contained walled area and then they'd allow it to settle and then cover it, cap it with clean sand, which was going to be taken from uh, dredged areas down in the south of the bay and relatively uncontaminated. So that that all sounded good, uh, but I would uh, suspect there'd be no capping with clean sand of any of this maintenance dredging, so that's a separate... Uh, because there's no clean sand uh, dredging operations underway at the moment. So it's just something that's been forgotten about. I have to confess I haven't had time to be yelling at everyone and even ringing up people and asking questions when you're not possibly likely to get an answer anyway. Lots of people who are doing good work are engaged in practical projects and they've got deadlines to meet, and you know, so that's just another thing that uh, can get dropped off the radar just as... Northern Pacific sea stars have dropped off the radar too for a lot of people, in, including government, over the years. So uh, we need to perhaps do a bit of a stock take and just say, well, you know, what, what are the risks that are faced with the current practices and management um, practices for the bay? Maybe have a rethink and recalibration in terms of uh, what investments made in addressing them. What are the North Pacific sea stars? Why are they important? A species that uh, come from around Japan, China, uh, and in the North Pacific, believe it or not, <laughs> which uh, were introduced into the bay um, in the maybe mid-1990s from uh, Tasmania. So they were obviously, they, were take, they arrived in Tasmania in ship's ballast and uh, got a bit of a stronghold down there. And um, then again were introduced into Port Phillip Bay through um, ships' movements between Tasmania and the bay. And the problem with them is that they um, have an incredible reproductive capacity. You know, so there's estimates of between 25 million and 10 million eggs produced by each individual. They move across the seafloor and eat anything they can sort of climb on top of. <laughs> so it's too slow to get out of the way, you know. So uh, ultimately, they have very few predators in the bay. Although there's an 11 armed sea star that apparently has been uh, noted to be taking some of the spat of the northern Pacifics, but there's really not much um, containment of the population growth. And so ultimately, over time, they could potentially impact on the ecology of the bay because. The animals they feed on, the mollusks in particular that live in and on the seabed, play a key role in uh, cycling nutrients in the bay and therefore uh, underpinning the food chain. So if popu those populations are eliminated, then that's going to really uh, turn things on its head. So I haven't actually seen any genuine appraisal of that risk, and that's what I'm sort of talking about today really, is we need to just say, okay... Let's um, have, a, have a, uh, a serious think about these kind of risks and uh, just see whether we maybe should be doing things differently or uh, put investing more resources and time into uh, trying to minimise the problem. And how could you do that? The first step is to actually do some serious thinking, you know, <laughs> rather than just saying, oh, look, we've got other things to worry about. And, you know, so there does probably need to be a, a bit of a task force created to um, 
take some uh, time and probably from different sectors too so that there's a genuine representation of uh, different players and stakeholders rather than just uh, a small pocket of government. How widespread are they? We don't know. I mean, that's the whole point. You know, like there was a... Thousands of them uh, came up near shore in Karam recently, you know, and uh, I would estimate from uh, looking at photos and uh, that there would have been probably, you know, maybe at least a ton of them there. How big are they? Uh, about as big as your hand. So uh, they obviously don't get much bigger than that. Five arms. Um, but that in particular is what started me thinking well we should be really doing more about this because there was an opportunity, there was a missed opportunity that ton of sea stars could have actually been removed and uh, disposed of had there been a plan (laughs) and simply there there is no plan that would be a good step would be to look at, at getting a better understanding of their movements around the bay and seeing where there may be times when they are relatively near shore where a well-coordinated group of volunteers and with some paid uh, staff could actually collect them and dispose of them appropriately. What government department should be looking at this one? Is it a government department or is it a an, an NGO? Oh, no, well, uh, again, I'd say that it probably needs to be a combination because the government departments simply don't have the resources to deal with the... the um, the human commitment required to do that but it's not hard to get there's plenty of people who'd be interested in volunteering towards doing something positive like that Uh, but we do need the support and uh, cooperation coordination from government though so that uh, it's done appropriately so I could have gone down to Karam and started putting Northern Pacific sea stars in buckets but then where am I what am I going to do with them so we need some support from organisations like a local council that could have come and parked a skip on the beach and had the truck to take it away and, you know, the, the waste management practices that could, could actually deal with it appropriately. But, again, it requires coordination and cooperation and that's where we need to all work together. What's the guesses or whatever of why they beached at Karam? There's a couple of possibilities. Um, that according to press release from the Department of Agriculture but uh, they were dead uh, I'm not sure how they come to that conclusion though. and uh, another possibility is that they might have um, if they were dead possibly because they'd eaten out all the shellfish in the area and they'd starve well I don't know whether they actually starve though that's you know more knowledge required another possibility though is that they'd come in near shore which is what they do just prior to winter or in early winter to spawn so uh, interestingly enough on this occasion it was around on Anzac Day curious that the spawning occurs generally uh, when the water temperatures gets to below 17 degrees interesting life I was watching the news and the Bells Beach Surf Carnival and they were talking about this 15 metre ocean swells coming from the southern ocean and it's great surfing conditions and I thought, hmm, there goes the bay temperature sure enough it was down to below 14 degrees <laughs> within a few days of the, the sea stars being offshore at current so whether that's, that may be just a coincidence, might be just me sort of uh, thinking of uh, uh, possibilities but we need to understand these things and we simply aren't investing time and energy into into trying to understand them. We can do better.
Just going back to the, the dredging again, the dredging of the rivers, is that going into a bund or not? Oh, well, they would be taking it into the, the area which has historically been the, the spoil ground, as they call it. I don't know why spoil is an interesting <laughs> word when you think about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so since the channel deepening was um, completed, I've never seen any uh, visual evidence of what the bunded area looked like once it had been filled. You know, so presumably there may be still some walled areas that they would be putting in, but they'll be they'll be placing it in that general region of the bay. So, but if it's not within the bund, it, it's still uncapped. I would assume so, and it is you know, contaminated material that's that's going there. So uh, it can't be good for the organisms again. Those benthic organisms that live in and on the seabed, if they're living in those kind of contaminated conditions, they're possibly not going to live for long. I know you said at the time that it would take a long time for the effects of the dredging to be noticeable, but is it too early yet? Uh, Well, I guess um, the the effects were actually noted by Annette Finger, who was doing... uh, PhD on uh, chemical contaminants and, and penguins. She studied penguin uh, feather samples uh, from three colony areas, one from Phillip Island, St Kilda and I think Notch Island was the other one, or somewhere out in, in Bastra. Her findings were that uh, there had been an increase in mercury and lead, I think, in arsenic. There were three uh, uh, levels of contaminants, though, that were particularly high in the St Kilda colony that there hadn't been that same increase in the other two areas within two years of the channel deepening occurring. So, But there was no indication, though, that that was having an impact on the breeding success of the penguins, and then the reality is the penguins are doing quite well, as it seems. You know, the population is, is growing considerably. Their weights are good. So... In that sense, uh, although you know, there's sort of an alarming increase seen in those in those uh, levels, toxins in their system, it can't be said that it's at a point where it's of a serious impact. But again, we have to look to the future, and how long can we continue to do that? And uh, how do we know that uh, continuing with business as usual won't actually have a deleterious impact on the ecology of the bay? Well, we've only got to look at the recent fires, haven't we? Stone, what it did to Stony Creek and and the other fires coming that it all gets washed down a creek somewhere into yeah. the bay somewhere. Mm. It, it all has to have an impact. Yeah, and I, I guess that's the thing too is that um, generally the average conditions are probably not going to be too much of a problem. But when you have ex- extreme events, though, that's when. Uh, changes occur and that uh, that fire in particular the West Footscray one was a, a really good example of that where all of the uh, checks and balances that should be uh, have been applied um, didn't seem to exist in that situation where the, the chemicals contained in the warehouse where shouldn't have been there and uh, you know so there weren't appropriate systems to prevent fire water or the water that's used to quell uh, fires like that uh, to contain that within the site so a lot of stuff did escape into the into the system so that's an extreme event and the magnitude of that 
for that particular waterway, uh, it's hard to see how it's going to recover in even the short term or, or even the medium term. Have you been down there recently? Uh, no, not for... Uh, I, uh, have been there, you know, perhaps two months ago. Uh, been looking at the mangroves down at the bottom of Stony Creek, and uh, quite a number of the um, uh, smaller seedlings uh, were killed by that fire, but uh, or the the waters that came away from it. The older uh, plants seem to be hanging in, so uh, we just hope that that uh, they don't uh, go under. But uh, yeah, they have to ask though if the seedlings are in trouble. Well, then what else is going on in that in the sediments there for the other organisms that are, that are in that in that area? And a lot of fish died. Birds feeding on those fish. Yeah, that's right. And it's hard to say. You know, you could say that the effects are localized, but uh, again, those um, contaminants coming out of the creek would have been. An, Another thing that would adsorb to silts coming down the, the river and ultimately settling in the sediment. So next time there's maintenance dredging done for the uh, shipping channel and those uh, that dredging material is placed in the bay, well, then that, that adds to the load of contaminants in the bay. There's also a concern that the material that the firefighters use to put out these fires is, is contributing to the, the problem as well. Yeah, that's right, and uh, yeah, that's uh, the PFAS or the chemicals that have been used for, for firefighting over around the country. There, there's um, issues that have been identified in a number of uh, uh, military and air force um, places around around the country, and I, I believe that uh, use of those things have been banned in in many places, and there's talk about banning them and some have said they are banned in Australia. It's not clear to me that <laughs> whether or not that has actually happened but uh, clearly though the, there's, there's big risks associated with those materials. And now people are suing for their health problems from years ago? Yeah, well that's, that's um, I suspect one of the reasons why it's almost hard to get governments to admit there is a problem because if they're doing that they could be opening themselves up to litigation. Mm. <laughs> it's one of those unfortunate sort of uh, uh, things that um, we, we seem to be staying, living with the past practices that are uh, not that good, that obviously do have problems with them, but uh, it's hard to take that. A courageous step. Well, what's that in yes, minister, I think, is something, a very, very bold minister, very bold. <laughs> Talk for a few minutes about the Port Phillip Eco Centre. It's been going for many, many years now, and it's important. It's an important facility and a community venue, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's. Um, yeah, we're actually in our twentieth year this year, so um, we should be a party coming up soon. I think, Jane, you better well, come along to that. Well, just tell us how it began. If it's twenty years ago. Uh, well, it, it was originally a um, City of Port Phillip initiative with the aim of showcasing the, the sustainability initiatives of the city, but also providing a hub for community groups who were doing uh, work uh, on environment, good environmental stuff. And so uh, uh, the, the Echo Centre was established with a view to helping uh, people who were doing good things, uh, supporting them in, in that mission. And when you think about it, many local community groups, for example, don't have... Uh, 
a good meeting space, for example, where you, they could actually invite 20 or 30 people to come around, you know, if you're going to be in your lounge room or something, <laughs> or go to a pub or something, well, it's sometimes too noisy, you don't have facilities to show PowerPoints or presentations, all of that sort of stuff. So providing more resources to community uh, people who had uh, good intentions and good knowledge. There's a lot of local knowledge that uh, is underutilised simply because it isn't given a leg up by the resources available. And how has it evolved over those 20 years? Oh, well, uh, I think you know we started off with about uh, four or five um, affiliated groups. We've got 26 or so now. Uh, and, yeah, so we're working, uh, well, the Port Phillip Bay-wide sort of approach has actually given us connections with local governments and uh, we're, we're aiming towards cross-sectoral sort of collaborations too, um, more widely, and... That seems to be a very positive approach because when you look at it, um, local governments are sort of tend to be constrained by their municipal borders. They sort of uh, do stuff within that. Similarly, with um, government agencies, they've got particular brief and uh, you know, some sort of constraints around their operations. And whereas a not-for-profit group can actually uh, move around and out is not so contained and has more freedom and flexibility to, to actually go and start conversations and come up with some potential uh, solutions to environmental issues and particularly engaging local communities in understanding and uh, appreciating their environment more and empowering them with uh, things they can do to actually care for that environment. And, of course... Engaging the youth in those areas is important for you as well. Yeah, that, that's what it's really all about, you know. For me, I just think we we're really paying it forward to the next generation. We've got to we've got to keep uh, a positive environment for them to inherit. Uh, and yeah, it's just uh, not tenable for us to be wasteful and greedy and <laughs> take it all, all up for ourselves and not uh, think about what what their future is going to be. And the centre's won a few awards, or the people involved with the centre have won a few awards? Yeah, yeah, continues to do that. And, uh, yeah, we've been very successful, particularly over the last five or six years, I guess. And uh, that's all good. You know, it's sort of the stuff that you have to do. If you don't do that, well, people, you know, you don't spend the time sort of blowing your own trumpet a little bit. It's one of those funny things. Then you don't have the profile to be taken seriously. So uh, it's just something we have to invest a bit of time in sort of uh, showcasing what we do as well as doing the, the hard graft and making things happen. So the future is dealing with plastics. That's the main. There's lots of other side issues important, but the plastic is the one right at the top at the moment, isn't it? Oh, well, it's certainly... Um, you Up know, there? It's, it's, well, it's, it's very central to consumption. It's also very central to climate change, you know, so... It's associated with a whole lot of other issues, population growth, as, as I mentioned before. Yeah, so it's it's a good one because everyone's it's part of everyone's lives, and every organisation uh, and government agency, whatever, has some sort of responsibility or you know can do something practical about it. So in that sense, it's a good topic to be talking to people about. But it is associated with. Uh, climate change and consumption and uh, those other things too. There is another person down there, isn't there, and it's, his name is 
Captain Trash? Uh, yeah, he's uh, my identical second cousin, actually. And uh, he's, uh, strangely enough, he's never around when I'm about. But uh, yeah, he's um, does a lot of work with early learning centres. It's amazing. He tells me that the kids, you know, they're four years old and and they're really starting to cotton on to the uh, the five R's. Uh, and uh, so they through reduce and reuse and recycle uh, and repair and remove. And there's a sixth one that's refuse. So yeah, uh, he's he's having fun. And uh, kids don't get frightened of him, do they at all? No, they seem to seem to uh, they don't think he's actually real. You know, so in fact uh, he tells them he's unreal. He's an unreal pirate. So, um, yeah, that's, that's good. And he's, he's been uh, missed out on the Archibald. He's, he's Tell us that story. Well, this amazing artist, Brenda Walsh, was good enough to bear with him for a, a few hours and paint his, well, actually many hours, painted this fantastic portrait of him and entered into the Archibald. Uh, unfortunately, didn't make the cut for the, um, that one, but it's in the Salon de Refuse. Which is totally appropriate. Uh, and that'll be um, on exhibition at the Pan Pacific Convention area. I think it's not sure what it's called, Convention 2 or something in uh, South Wharf in South Bank uh, from June the 3rd to October the 3rd. So uh, Captain Trash is pretty happy about that. It is. Final words, Neil? Uh, yeah, well, just um, I think uh, we have to have fun, uh, Jan. I'm not sure what you, how you feel about that, but uh, you know we've got some really serious pressing issues, and um, Captain Trash, I think, is uh, he's got he's onto something there, you know, because uh, people are likely to listen and to and and uh, take uh, in what a fictitious sort of fun character is talking about rather than someone talking seriously. I'm a bit concerned, maybe I'm just becoming a grumpy old man, but that um, particularly with social media and the ability to actually disseminate communications about campaigns and stuff like that, that quite often campaigners are talking amongst themselves and they're pitching stuff in, in, a, in a language and a format that only their relatively small peer group is actually going to appreciate. And that's really our big challenge is how we communicate those issues to the wider community who are just sort of uh, focused on their day-to-day sort of issues. Thank you to you, Neil. Thank you, Jan. Great pleasure to be here. And I'm not really sure now whether I was talking to Neil Blake or I was talking to Captain Trash, but whichever one, congratulations to he or they. In 2019, 3CR has the power. Add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 0394198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio. Samar Sabawi is an award-winning playwright, author, essayist and poet. Her latest play, Them, 
has its world premiere at La Mama Courthouse in Carlton on 29th of May and continues until the 9th of June. I spoke with Samar last Friday and pointed out first that it was three years in the making of the play and asked her if this was her most ambitious production in the size of not only the topic but those involved in the production. Not the most ambitious, no. That's a really difficult question to start with. (laughs) I would describe it as the next step for me uh, in terms of writing and really the message that I think is important today uh, in the environment that we live in. There's more people. We had a much larger cast in Tales of a City by the Sea. But even that, when I wrote it, I didn't write it thinking it was an ambitious thing to write. I wrote it because it had to be written. Uh, And I I work more instinctively in that way. And then it just grew. And maybe this one will also grow in the same way. So far, it's it's busting at the seams. (laughs) We're... We're, we're very pleased with the reactions, with the support. Uh, we had a run yesterday, a rehearsal that was open to the public at La Trobe University. And so we had some members of the public sitting in the audience and the laughter and the sobbing and the tears and the feedback was just truly incredible. I, I did not expect that, but it is what you would hope for when you write a work. So I, I feel very blessed in many ways, and I feel good about about really putting something on the stage that's going to open a conversation that we should be having day and night. The plight of the refugees, the asylum seekers, the impact of war on life, on people, on the planet, uh, our demonizing of those who are in need, and all of these topics, I mean, the play touches on this and, and more. It touches on the plight of women in places of war, uh, about it, it touches on sexual harassment, using women as weapons of war, early childhood, marriages, violence, uh, and impossible choices. And these are all the results not of a failed society or a sick or an immoral society, This is what war brings to any society, to educated people, to moral people. You find yourself having to survive. And what that means is that really bad things start to happen. And I I wanted people in a privileged city like Melbourne uh, to not just talk about refugees and asylum seekers or wars and conflicts, in these distant terms that we often talk about them, but rather to feel that they have an intimate and up-close understanding of what they could be going through. And you chose the topic, them. Yeah, them. I couldn't... uh, It started off really... started off as as a joke that I made with Tales of a City by the Sea. Every time I had to write the name of the play, it was a lot of typing. We couldn't fit it. It was was a long title, and people would get it wrong, and they would say Tales from a City by the Sea or Tales by the Sea of a City. And, you know, at one point I said to my producer, Lara, jokingly, the next play is going to have just one word in the title. (laughs) So no one can get it wrong. 
And uh, so when the inspiration for this play came to me, and I was uh, I was actually in Finland at the time on a speaking tour, and the refugee crisis broke out as a result of the war in Syria, and we saw footage of refugees crossing borders on foot with families, carrying children, carrying babies' belongings, walking through Europe, drowning in the sea. And I was in Finland, and the reaction of the nationalist movement in Finland at the time was to shut the gates, shut the borders, uh, call for tighter restrictions, and use the most demonizing kind of language to describe these people who are fleeing for their lives, calling them pedophiles and and, uh, violent uh, terrorists and so on. And I I sat there and I'm thinking, we use similar terms in Australia. We, too, other asylum seekers in these horrific ways. And we have an Islamophobic, an Islamophobia problem. We have racism. And so, and then I started writing the play and the title was just really the easiest thing that came to me as I, as I wrote it. It's, you know, and I'm thinking I'm writing a play about them uh, in the us and them rhetoric that we use every day. And so the title became them. And I lived up to my promise to my producer that it will be just one word in the title. Who were the the characters that you were basing it on? They really real life people? They've got elements of real-life people. I mean, when we write stories, or at least when I write stories, I'm always borrowing bits and pieces of people that I've encountered and have met and have heard about or read about. And so the stories are, they're all real stories glued together in in a way to make one story. There's a lot of inspiration for the day-to-day details of the writing of the play that comes to me from my family in Gaza and from talking particularly to my cousin Lubna in Gaza during the bombardment of Gaza, especially in 2014. I spoke with her daily. And so a a lot of that kind of how we deal with how a family, a young family with children would deal with being in a war zone, a lot of it came from her. And in fact, the scene, and I don't want to give too much away, but the scene at the very end, of the play, which is a, a, a very central to the play, and it had to do with a kitchen sink that came from a story that my cousin had actually lived uh, during the 2014 bombardment. This really sad thing is that in 2019, in the last few years, there are so many people in the situation like that in so many countries of the world risking their lives to escape war. Yeah, and we're still talking about starting new wars every day, and now they're talking about a war in Iran. As if they, they talk about wars in the Middle East especially, there's, there's a tendency to talk about the wars as if they are in, in very, uh, just inhumane terms. The, the humanity is taken completely out of it. And the mistakes that were made with the Iraq war, the first Iraq war, and then the second, nobody paid any price for this. Nobody got held accountable for this. And so people in positions of power, they know they can violate uh, human rights and act for what is in their interest, and they know that there will be no accountability, and so they're emboldened to continue to act in that way. And I think what I'm doing with theatre is a drop in the ocean of the things that we all need to be doing. But it is what I can offer and what I can do, and so I will do that. It is saying that these political decisions and these violations 
they impact people just like you and me. And when we're talking about Middle Easterners or Muslims uh, as if they're people who, they're not even people, we talk about them sometimes as if they are just something that is far from who we are as human beings. Uh, that is wrong, and that is what perpetuates violence and wars. It allows, uh, it's the demonization and the othering of these people that allows these wars to continue. And we have a responsibility. It's not just that the, you know, there are a bunch of people killing each other over there. No, it's our money. It's our policies. We're direct benefactors of the wars that are happening over there. And if we can't live up to that responsibility and saying, you know, enough is enough, we don't want to be part of this, then it's just going to continue. Sixty, More than 60 million refugees in the world, according to the latest statistic, more than 60 million refugees. That's almost three times Australia's population, people who are stateless, who are homeless, who are desperate, who are fleeing. And uh, everybody's solution to it is to build more walls and shut down the borders and not to stop the wars and to look at the policies that are actually causing these people to run. Talk a bit about the diverse range of people that have been involved in the production and also how you chose the actors for the play. So we have a very diverse, very diverse group of actors. In fact, uh, Claudia, who is the woman who is on the poster of our play, and she has a, a beautiful and complicated role to play, uh, Claudia Greenstone, she is Jewish, and yet she's the one wearing the hijab and carrying the baby in the poster for them. And uh, we have Abdul Rahman Hamoud, who plays Omar, the character of the father and the husband. Uh, it's his first time acting, and he is superb. He is just amazing. So it's going to be great to say that we discovered him when he's a superstar. He's of Lebanese origin, Muslim. He's been fasting through the rehearsals, which is lovely. We have another Muslim also who's been fasting through the rehearsals, Khisro Jean Shukur, and he's from an Afghani background. We have Priscilla Dwehi, who is Lebanese background. And, uh, Reese Villa, who is Maltese, and Reese was part of my play, Tales of a City by the Sea. And in many ways, uh, it was Reese. The way that Reese played the character Ali in Tales of a City by the Sea that planted the seed for me in writing the character Omar in them. So Omar takes bits and pieces of Ali's character and bits and pieces of uh, Reese Vela's actual real-life character, and uh, and then with other elements, of course. But uh, but I always say it's, it's it's amazing how sometimes a good actor can inspire a new character and a new role. I wanted to just mention that also in the in the cast of performances, my, my son, Nahid Elias, who plays a piano man, um, and his role is a very interesting one. He doesn't have many lines, but he plays the piano throughout some of the scenes of the play. Good. The venue is La Mama Courthouse. You've already That's got right. an extended session, even before you've started. But we had a two-week run initially and then we just had to add two more performances because we sold out very quickly um, and we were we wanted people to who, who hear about the play once we start performing to be able to come and see it but we also sold out the two performances now um, and we are opening next week so it just goes to show how hungry people are uh, for these kinds of stories and how supportive 
our uh, community in Melbourne is of seeing plays like this uh, being staged. Is there a possibility for extending it even further? No, unfortunately not, because with theatres, they're usually booked, you know, the entire season. They've got other other things going on. So we were only able to add two performances on this, like, during the day. So they, they were matinees on the same days that we had the theatre. Hopefully, maybe, we will come back uh, and remount next year and plan a at a larger venue, maybe, and do a, a national tour, but we, we haven't really talked about this yet, but uh, it certainly is a, a possibility. It sounds as though the reaction you got from the Trobe University the other day, it's going to be a great success. I hope so. Um, I actually believe that it, it... I'm certain people are going to be moved by it, so I hope that everybody who wants to see it is going to be able to find a way to see it. I encourage people to come and try their luck at the door. I can't promise that everyone will get in, but uh, there will be people not showing up who have tickets sometimes, and and we try to accommodate as many people as possible on the night. So that's one way you can uh, can try to see the show. Uh, And the other thing we're trying to do now is we're trying to free up some tickets. So just keep watching the Facebook page for them. Uh, We will be making announcements every time we have any... Uh, extra tickets available. And just also to activate people to join anti-war movements to address this terrible issue that you've been focusing on. Extremely, this is extremely important and it's it's a very important part of all the work that I do is to, especially in in a place, I I love Melbourne. Melbourne is a beautiful city. It's peaceful, it's gorgeous, it's artistic, it's lefty, it's hip. And you can lose yourself sometimes in a place like Melbourne because it's just so comfortable to not think about anything outside of, of, you know, of being here. And so it becomes even more important for places uh, like theatre to take people on these journeys, to remind them that, uh, you know, we live in a, in a beautiful place, but look, here is what the world looks like. Uh, and here's how we connect to what is happening over there. So uh, that it's very important for me as as my contribution. As I said, it's a it's a dot in the ocean, but it's it's what I can do is to to write as a means of advocacy against war and against violence. Thank you, and congratulations once again. Thank you. And that was Samar Sabawi. Palestinian stroke Canadian stroke Australian playwright talking about her latest play Them and as Samar said keep a look out for the Facebook page because there might be tickets going we were lucky to get just about the last lot at the matinee on the Sunday that was one of the extra ones that we've put on so you might be lucky hopefully and even so as Samar said it might be being played again later. Attention book lovers, the new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. 
In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 3744. That's 9662-3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Home Time to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Nick, Morrison's back as Prime Minister. Where is he going for his first overseas trip? He's off to the Solomon Islands for his first trip as, uh, as Prime Minister, elected Prime Minister. Last year, Scott Morrison gave a speech at the Laverack Army Barracks in Townsville, an interesting choice of location, speaking before the troops that are Australia's intervention force in the Asia-Pacific region. And he talked about the need to put meat on the bones of what Malcolm Turnbull used to call the step-up to the Pacific. Terrible jargon. But it means that Australia needs to be more engaged with its Pacific neighbours. And the perception is that Pacific countries are becoming more adventurous in their foreign policy and creating diplomatic, economic, trade ties with countries that Australia would prefer they don't. The obvious one being China. But it's not just China. It's Indonesia, it's Korea and other forces, other Asian emerging economies. And so um, Morrison's... Symbolic trip, I think, to the Solomon Islands is a way of saying that Australia is going to focus its regional aid program very much on the Pacific Islands rather than Southeast Asia, and that they're very fearful that the new Sogavari government uh, in the Solomon Islands, Manasa Sogavari as Prime Minister, is getting closer to China. Now, this is not the first time that Australia's been very interested in Solomon Islands. Well, Australia led the regional intervention known as RAMSI, the Regional Assistance Mission to Solomon Islands, between um, 2003 and 2017. It was a major intervention, costing nearly $3 billion. Um, A lot of that money went to uh, law and order, justice programs, to policing, to military deployments. In fact, a study by the Lowy Institute found 86% of that amount, nearly $3 billion, went towards law and justice programs broadly defined and paying for the Australian military, paying for the Australian Federal Police and police officers from other Forum Island countries. So it was a significant intervention in what's a a small country by global standards but strategically important uh, next door to Australia. And Solomons is in a funny situation because politically they're aligned with Taiwan. They're one of six Pacific Island countries that has diplomatic relations with Taiwan rather than with Beijing. But China is now the biggest aid and trade partner with Solomon Islands. And so we're seeing a shift where Solomon Islands is discussing whether it should formally recognise a one-China policy, as Australia does, and break its ties with Taiwan, uh, which would send reverberations around the region. Turnbull stepped up a few years ago to fund a submarine uh, internet cable that would link uh, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands and Australia to stop Huawei, the Chinese corporation, uh, building uh, such a cable. And so uh, we've seen uh, successive conservative governments in Australia concerned that uh, one of our closest neighbours is uh, dealing with China just as as if it's a normal country. Is that all he's going to offer? Well, we'll see. There's um, going to be a push, I think, to get more seasonal workers to come to Australia from Solomon Islands. There'll be uh, a lot. The problem for the government is, however, that the aid budget is bare. In the last budget, 
uh, aid was reduced over Ford estimates, and it will end up in the next couple of years at the lowest point ever recorded since uh, they first started counting in 1974. Um, we're going to be less than 0.2% of gross national income given to foreign aid. The target, the UN target, which some countries meet, like Norway and Finland and others, is 07 So we're a long way in going backwards from the, the global targets that have been set for development assistance. There's a worrying sign, too, that the Cabinet just been announced... Um, the Minister for International Development in the Pacific is a guy called Alex Hawke. Uh, he's a New South Wales senator, a head kicker from the New South Wales right, and those that know their history, this is the uh, branch of the Liberal Party that brought you Tony Abbott and Jim Moland and Conchetta Fioravanti-Wells and so on. So Alex is no radical. He's also been made Assistant Minister for Defence, and that's an interesting pairing. Minister for International Development, Minister for the Pacific and Assistant Minister for Defence. And that suggests that the Morrison government, while it will continue its engagement with the Pacific, is going to frame it through a defence and security prism. And the obvious target of that is China. Now that's going to run into some conflict with Pacific Island governments that have different perspectives on security. And as we've talked about on this program before, at the 2018 meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum, the Boy Declaration that came out of that meeting said that the greatest single threat to the security and well-being and livelihoods of Pacific Islanders was climate change. Not China, not terrorism, not the Islamic threat, but climate change was a, a serious and indeed existential threat to some smaller Pacific Island countries. And, uh, you know, Australia signed off on that declaration. But what we're seeing is that the resources in terms of aid, in terms of uh, a new financing facilities for infrastructure and so on is being targeted at defence issues, not at the development issues, the poverty issues, the climate change issues that are a central part of the human security agenda being advanced by our Pacific neighbours. Well, Sogavara is going to tell him that, isn't he, when he arrives there? Very much so, and we're going to see this year at the Pacific Islands Forum the same discussion. Tuvalu a country of just 11,000 people, low-lying atoll nation, is the host of this year's forum. So climate change is going to be absolutely central to the forum agenda this year. Um, current Prime Minister Anneli Sopolayan has been one of the most vocal activists through the global climate negotiations, talking about the central importance of climate change and security. There's also going to be a whole lot of new faces at this year's forum, including, it's been reported uh, for the first time in many years, Frank Bainimarama, Vorengi Bainimarama, the Prime Minister of Fiji, has been very active on climate change internationally. Fiji hosted the Conference of the Parties um, the year before last. Fiji is, uh, is really centrally engaged in the push to, to bring down emissions, uh, much more urgent action to reduce temperatures below 1.5 degrees or even 1 degree and so on. So it's going to be a very interesting meeting in Tuvalu this year where climate change will be front and centre and the Morrison government, while talking about China, will also face a, a serious push from our island neighbours to ask, what are you doing about climate change? And as we know, this is a government that's been paralysed on climate policy for a long time. Um, the focus on reducing prices for Australians has uh, meant that there's been limited commitment to reduction of emissions. The obvious push from the Queenslanders about Adani and the success that the mining industry had to uh, push for the opening up of the Galilee Basin is certainly going to anger our Pacific neighbours. 
Barnaby Joyce and Peter Dutton and uh, Angus Taylor and all the gang are eager for a coal-fired power station to be built using taxpayer funds in Queensland. Now, our neighbours are looking at this and thinking, this is madness. It's not just our Pacific Island neighbours. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, was in uh, Fiji just uh, two weeks ago. He held a meeting with island countries to talk about the need to implement uh, the the latest IPCC report on greenhouse gas emissions and uh, 1.5 degrees. Uh, Guterres sees small island developing states as an ally in this global challenge. Small island developing states make up a quarter of the membership of the UN General Assembly. They're tiny economies, they're militarily powerless, but uh, they've got the votes in international fora. And I think the UN Secretary-General sees the voice of Pacific Islands as absolutely central to his push to get countries to take this seriously at a time that Donald Trump and the Australian government are moving backwards. Well, how long before Australia is going to really bite the bullet and realise that they're like a shag on a rock in the Pacific? Next year, there's going to be a global challenge because in 2020, at the Conference of the Parties in the global climate negotiations, uh, countries have to put up and shut up in terms of uh, beginning the, uh, the discussion about refunding for the Green Climate Fund. And Australia has refused under the Morrison government to commit extra funds to the Green Climate Fund, even though Australia used to be co-chair of the fund. There's going to be uh, a real analysis about, after Australia gets to its 2020 targets, whether it's capable of getting to the 2020, uh, 2030 targets for climate change. And as we know, the coalition's policy is, is going backwards. Emissions are rising, despite the lies that are told. Greenhouse gas emissions in Australia have risen in recent years. And it's clear that the, the 2030 targets just aren't going to be met uh, by uh, uh, the current policy tra- trajectory. Everyone, you know, who's got any common sense recognises that. You know, the Morrison government stuck. The problems that they had before the election are still there. It's not only the greenhouse gases here, though. It's the export of coal and other resources which causes greenhouse gases in the in the country where it's going to. Yeah, and I think this is... Uh, That's uh, not counted, is it? No, and I think this is a, a global debate. There's a debate, for example, about whether Australia should be... Australian companies, uh, BHP and CSL and others, should be buying permits overseas to allow them to keep polluting in Australia, but getting carbon reductions through purchasing carbon credits offshore. And the Labor Party's got to look at their policy to work out whether that should happen. But, um, look, I think it's clear, uh, despite the successful uh, campaign led by Scott Morrison, despite the defeat of the Labor Party, there's still a lot of concern and anger around climate change. Uh, you know, people like Zali Stegel and others, who are no radicals, uh, won their seats on the basis of climate action. The Independent, uh, Helen Haynes in, uh, in Indi and so on. The Queensland crew, Peter Dutton and Angus Taylor and, and others, Barnaby Joyce from New South Wales, are going to be arguing that climate, you know, is off the agenda. That's nonsense, and uh, the international context will show that. Um, as I say, the Pacific Islands Forum this year is going to make sure that climate change is uh, central. Just before we leave that area of the world, the North Solomon Islands, we don't hear it talked about as that, do we? Bougainville. Bougainville's on the agenda and there's a lot of problems. Bougainville was due to have a referendum on self-determination in June this year. That's been postponed till October where there'll be a decision on the, the future political status of Bougainville. But recently there's been a lot of criticisms from Bougainvillean MPs and others that Papua New Guinea has not provided the funding 
that they pledged at recent meetings uh, to implement the referendum. Uh, everything from drawing up electoral rolls to paying for, you know, uh, the transport and logistics of getting ballot boxes out to a, a very diverse and mountainous uh, area and so on. And there's real questions about whether the referendum will be able to proceed simply on purely logistic grounds. But that's even more unclear at the moment with the resignation of Prime Minister Peter O'Neill. One of the features of the Bougainville Independence Referendum is that uh, a simple yes vote from the people of Bougainville doesn't actually determine much. It's in fact up to the government of Papua New Guinea through the parliament of Papua New Guinea to make a decision about whether they accept what's essentially an advisory opinion by the people of Bougainville. So it's pretty clear that Bougainvillians are going to vote yes for independence. Not everyone, but certainly a a significant majority, given the horrors of the war in the 1990s and the long-standing desire going back to the 1970s to have an independent and sovereign state. But the PNG Parliament, on current numbers, has been uh, uh, opposed to independence. All things are up in the air because the O'Neill government is in turmoil. Peter O'Neill, as Prime Minister, has resigned. Why? Well, a whole range of reasons. Um, There's a lot of corruption allegations against O'Neill personally and uh, against members of his government. That's That's been uh, going on for a long time. It's been going on for a long time. And uh, and O'Neill has manoeuvred very carefully to avoid uh, judicial oversight of these matters. A real concern about the big picture deals that O'Neill has done around the resources sector particularly, um, some with China, a recent deal with Total, the French corporation, about uh, getting investment from Total, uh, billions of dollars in the oil and gas industry, particularly the gas industry. A lot of Papua New Guineans concerned the big picture things that the O'Neill government's done with China, with the French, with the APEC meeting, which they hosted last November, hasn't flowed down to benefit ordinary people who face many challenges around Service provision, you know, the health system's very weak in public health system, very weak in Papua New Guinea, and people in rural and regional areas, you know, don't have the resources that they need. His own government's been crumbling. Key ministers like James Marape have uh, jumped ship, uh, resigned their positions as cabinet ministers and gone over to the opposition. And I think we'll see in coming weeks the opposition not just wanting O'Neill's head, but indeed the collapse of the whole government. There'll be a, a, a push within the parliament that the opposition has the numbers to replace the O'Neill government, even without O'Neill at the head. O'Neill has fallen on the sword, uh, resigning and trying to hand over to Sir Julius Chan, the veteran political leader who's been Prime Minister several times. Indeed, going back to the Bougainville War, uh, Sir Julius Chan was there. A lot of blood on his hands. At that time. Sir Julius Chan was... uh, involved in trying to bring the, uh, the mercenaries, um, sandline mercenaries, to, to Bougainville when the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, with Australian uh, logistic support through helicopters and patrol boats and so on, was unable to put down the Bougainville Revolutionary Army and uh, pro-independence military forces at that time. So a lot of turmoil in PNG. Uh, it's standard operating procedure. PNG's always had a very lively parliament. There's been attempts to curb the use of no-confidence motions, which have often hamstrung good governance in PNG. But O'Neill's resignation is a sign that he realised that he couldn't hang on. Uh, Whether his government can hang on or whether there'll be a change of government uh, in the near future has significant implications for the forum, uh, for the Melanesian Spearhead Group, for neighbouring countries, for the asylum seekers and refugees still detained uh, 
in Papua New Guinea, although they're supposedly free to wander around Manus, they're still effectively detained, um, even though the, it's unconstitutional. So these are real problems. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time, and my guest is journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. I know this is not just Peter O'Neill, but when you think of the resources that have been dragged out of PNG over decades and decades, and you say that the people don't have the resources... It's a, it's a real absolute disaster, isn't it, for the people? One of the things you see right across the Pacific is significant effort by Pacific communities, Pacific governments, Pacific businesses to get a better deal out of resource exploitation. Firstly, there's a lot of effort to stop the destruction caused by resource uh, projects, uh, you know, the environmental impacts of mining, the clear felling of forests and destruction of native habitat, uh, the overfishing that we're seeing uh, across the world, but particularly in some uh, species, particularly tuna, and so on. So the whole question of sustainability and sustainable use of resources is very much on the regional agenda. Secondly, there's been a major battle to get uh, more revenues from the corporations, often foreign corporations, that are involved in these projects, um, so that uh, people aren't just seeing logging, mining, fishing, uh, with the resources ripped out of the ground or out of the oceans and shipped off with no return. So, for example, the parties to the Nauru Agreement, PNA, is one of the great regional success stories where Pacific governments have banded together to set up a system to monitor fishing uh, in the exclusive economic zones and indeed increasingly the high seas of the Pacific to control illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing by uh, foreign fishing vessels, and to demand a better return. And we've seen the, the revenues, the annual revenues from fishing, of tuna particularly in the region, grow from $60-odd million to over $400 million through the work of PNA and the Forum Fisheries Association, which, as the name suggests, is the body that links all the Forum Island countries who are concerned with fishing. Um, that hasn't happened well with logging, you know, we've seen across PNG, Solomon Islands, uh, Vanuatu to a certain extent, terrible action by mainly Asian logging companies from Japan, uh, Taiwan and, and other, other areas, increasingly China, that have just ripped out really beautiful hardwood timber without paying proper royalties, without environmental controls, without any attempt to rehabilitate forest areas. And much of that is done without the free, prior and informed consent of communities that have safeguarded those forests for generations. So this is a real battleground, you know, the resource exploitation of the Pacific. Firstly, how can it be done sustainably? And secondly, how can it be done so that ordinary people get some benefit from that? And I think this is one of the concerns that we see with the debate about the leadership of Papua New Guinea. Firstly, whether mining, logging, fishing is being done in an environmentally sustainable way, and often the answer to that is no, and secondly, are foreign multinationals ripping off people? There are enormous contrasts in the region about how governments and communities have handled this. Nauru stands as a model of a country that uh, allowed corporations, British, Australian, New Zealand, the British Phosphate Commissioners, to just exploit the phosphate that was the central resource of the islands, leaving an environmental disaster in the centre of, of Nauru. These limestone pinnacles, just a wasteland that can't be used uh, by the, the community, and yet the revenues that came from that have been frittered away in many cases, and Nauru, as we've 
long known, has been reliant on the offshore processing centre um, that Australia has funded to the tune of billions of dollars. Uh, without ordinary in our ruins, seeing most of that cash that's been squirrelled away in other places. In contrast, some countries have learnt the lesson about this. In New Caledonia, for example, where I've just been visiting, uh, the northern province of New Caledonia has uh, learnt the lessons about allowing transnational corporations in without any control. And so they've set up joint venture partnerships uh, in New Caledonia, in Korea, in China, um, but with 51% control so that uh, the, the local administration, provincial administration, has a majority ownership of the joint ventures. Now, that's not happened in PNG. That's not happened in Nauru, certainly. But countries that are increasingly moving into this area realise that to simply let in foreign corporations to rip and, and, and render is bad policy. And what are the resources in New Caledonia? Well, New Caledonia's got enormous resources. It's got a, a huge maritime zone, um, 1.3 million square kilometres, an enormous reef area that's uh, a treasure both for reef biodiversity and for tourism. It's been World Heritage listed uh, as one of, you know, very similar to the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, you know, New Caledonia's just off the coast of Queensland and has a similar beautiful reef ecology that's an enormous resource. But particularly in the mining area, New Caledonia has... Um, a quarter of the world's uh, known reserves of nickel, together with cobalt and other strategic metals. Uh, nickel's used as an alloy in everything from pots and pans to armaments and rockets and so on. It's an incredibly useful metal. And New Caledonia has got a lot to bargain with um, in terms of uh, China, India, other companies, uh, other countries uh, eager to get their hands on, on this uh, strategic uh, resource. What were the recent elections? New Caledonia's just had elections um, on May the 12th for its three provincial assemblies and its national congress. Uh, it's a really significant time and uh, no reporting in the Australian media, by and large, of uh, what happened. But things are really moving in New Caledonia. We've talked before on the program about New Caledonia's referendum on self-determination last November. Although the majority of New Caledonians voted no against independence, wanting to stay within the French Republic, Polling was completely wrong. <laughs> we know about that in Australia. A significant minority of, of uh, people voted yes. 43%, nearly 44% of people voted yes to independence. Now, it's not a majority, but it's pretty close to 50%. And it's put wind in the sails of the independence movement, the FLNKS, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front. Uh, so six months after that November referendum, they held elections for the provincial assemblies. As in the past... The FLNKS won a majority in both the North and the Loyalty Islands province. Those are two rural areas where the majority of the population is Kanak, indigenous Melanesian population. Um, but the southern province, which has always been a bastion of anti-independence support, swung to the right and voted no. There were three interesting elements, I suppose, to the elections. The first is that the FLNKS held steady in their vote and, in fact, increased uh, their representation in the Congress got an extra seat compared to the last time, the last elections in 2014. So it's pretty evenly poised. There are 28 opponents of independence and 26 pro-independence people, 28-26. So it only takes another seat or two for there to be a pro-independence majority. And every election since 1999, the independence movement has gradually crept up their representation in the Congress. Is this the younger people coming on? There's a debate about generational change. The people who led, you know, first the call for independence in the 70s and 80s are getting older. 
and a younger generation coming up. The other interesting change was the creation of a new party for the Walesian and Futunian community. Wallace and Futuna is another French Pacific dependency, a tiny country, only about 15,000 people living there. And in fact, there's more Walesians living in New Caledonia than in Wallace and Futuna. 20-odd thousand people, uh, 30,000 some say. These are people who came during the late 60s, early 70s at the time of the nickel boom to work in the nickel industry. And uh, today... The Polynesian population, different to the Melanesian Canucks, makes up about 10% of the country's population. So it's a significant voting block. And historically, the Walesians and Futunians, Tahitians, have backed the right. During the clashes of the 1980s, they formed militias, armed bodyguards and so on for the right. But they've realised that times are changing, that the independence movement is growing um, its support, particularly amongst young people, that the demand for self-determination is not going to go away. And indeed that the incoming Congress, a third of the members can vote for another referendum, which is therefore going to be held probably in late 2020. And so this question about the political status of New Caledonia isn't going to happen. So the New Caledonians' population is quite split. The Europeans have turned to the right. And indeed the, the woman who did best is, the, I suppose, the New Caledonian equivalent of Pauline Hanson, uh, led a coalition of right-wing parties uh, that did well in the, in the elections and, in fact, gained the largest number of seats in the southern province. But uh, this new Walesian party, Pacific Awakening, Eve Oceanian, was created just in March this year. They got four seats in the southern province, three seats in the Congress. Not a huge number, but it's in fact a swing vote. Just because the numbers, as I said, 28-26 are so close, three votes can make a difference. And we saw that last Friday where the Congress met for the first time after the elections and had to choose their president, what's the speaker of the Congress, we'd call it. And the three Walesian reps of Evayosinian voted with the independence movement. The Congress president, Congress speaker, is Rokwamito, a long-time independence leader from the uh, largest pro-independence party. That sent tremors through the right that historically Walesians have backed them um, and supported them. The new party is, is not an independence party. They say, in fact, that they support staying within France. But it's a sign of the times that the Walesian community are wanting to speak in their own voice, not having whitefellas speak on their behalf and use them simply as electoral fodder um, or, or cannon fodder. And that's a sign of the times that for the possibility over the next few years that there might be growing cultural links where Melanesian and Polynesian people come together as islanders, recognising that New Caledonia, while still a French dependency, is a country in the South Pacific, and the future has to be working together to build a multiracial society. Now, French people can jump on the plane and go back to France, but the Walesians don't want to jump on a plane and go back to Wallace. They see their future as in New Caledonia, many of them, uh, not all, but most. Uh, and that means that they have to live with the indigenous people, the sovereign Kanak people. So there's some interesting signs in the wind coming out of the election. So we see this across Melanesia. We see this dynamism, this change happening. PNG politics in turmoil with debates over resource politics. The Solomon Islands debating whether it goes with Taiwan or China. New Caledonia moving towards another referendum on self-determination. Bougainville due to hold a referendum later this year, um, which could be a bit chaotic, or early next year, um, about its political status. These signs of change are happening, 
And to give Scott Morrison his due, he's recognised that this is happening, that there's stuff on the move. The problem for the Australian government is that its solutions are based on trying to bribe people with infrastructure so they don't take money from the Chinese. And that's missing the bigger picture. This is about development. This is about control of natural resources and sustainability of natural resources. Very much at the heart of a lot that's happening in the Pacific, it's about climate change and the existential threat that comes from the climate emergency. Whether Australia is willing to put the resources into those areas, time will tell. Just before we leave the Pacific, Nick, a significant anniversary in New Caledonia. Yes, on the 4th of May this year was the 30th anniversary of the death, the murder of Jean-Marie Chibau and Yueni Yueni, two Kanak independence leaders who were assassinated in 1989. There was a very moving ceremony held uh, across the country. Firstly, I travelled to Tiendanit, which is the home village for Jean-Marie Chibau, the charismatic uh, Kanak leader who was really the founder of the FLNKS, the Kanak Independence Coalition. At the same time, on the island of Mare, a ceremony was held uh, in the village for Yueni Yueni, who was Chibau's lieutenant. And also on Uvea, in Gosana uh, tribe, uh, a ceremony around the grave of Jubilee Wea. Jubilee Wea was, in fact, the man who killed Chibau and Yueni. But um, all three are seen as Kanak leaders. All three are seen as victims of the, the times. Uvea was the site of the Uvea massacre, where 19 Kanak activists and a couple of French soldiers were killed during the hostage crisis um, at the time of the French presidential elections. It was really the culmination of four years of conflict in New Caledonia. And uh, the death of the 19 activists, the mistreatment, even torture of people in Gosana, including Jubilee Weir, uh, his father was killed at that time, really uh, left a legacy of bitterness and, and anger. And when the two independence leaders, Shomri Chibau and Yueni Yueni, travelled to Uvea a year after the Uvea massacre, a year after the death of the young 19 activists, they were assassinated by Jubilee Weir, and he in turn was shot down by Chibau's bodyguard. Those deaths left a, a, a real scar on the country for many years. But um, there was a, a fascinating and really moving process of reconciliation firstly between the widows, then the children and the families, then the extended clans of these three men, going from 1990 right up until 2004 with the intervention of customary Kanak leaders, particularly with church figures, ecumenical people from both Catholic and Protestant church. There were attempts to reconcile in a truly cultural way families, clans that had been divided by such tragic and bitter circumstances. I had the opportunity to meet Chibau's son, Emmanuel, who spoke at the ceremony marking uh, the 30th anniversary of his father's death. And in fact, I've written up a story on Inside Story, uh, which people could Google and uh, have a look at. Emmanuel Chibau said that the reconciliation between his father's murderer and his family is an important thing that other people who've been through these sort of traumas could learn from. People who in the Solomon Islands, for example, or Bougainville, which have also seen bitter conflict that have divided families, divided clans. He thought that the reconciliation um, that they'd been through was important. So on the 30th anniversary of Chibau's death, of Yueni's death, of Jubilee Weir's death, it was a really moving time. And in each of the three villages, there's a plaque 
that symbolizes the reconciliation, not the events of 1989, but the events of 2004, where people came together to say, in spite of these bitter conflicts, we can come together using our own cultural values. And I think that's a lesson, you know, for others at a time of warfare and conflict around the world. What sort of processes can we learn from others about bringing torn communities and knitting them back together again? This is a challenge for the Morrison government that's going to face questions about what happens to the asylum seekers and refugees in Manus and Nauru now that they've been re-elected. What happens to people living in camps in Syria um, now that the war supposedly is winding down in Syria? What happens to people living in the Kurdish areas? These are, uh, are real challenges Uh, The war is not over for those people, even though the shooting may have stopped. And many thanks to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And it's now 5.32. For many years, the International Freedom Flotilla Coalition, a grassroots people-to-people solidarity movement, has consisted of campaigns and initiatives from all over the world working together to end the illegal blockade of Gaza. The next international sailing is in 2020, but in the US, the North American Freedom Flotilla Gaza Project is getting in early with three days of actions in July this year. I spoke with one of those organising the events, Sean Reynolds, and asked him first about the International Freedom Flotilla Coalition, how long it's been working for Gaza. The Freedom Flotilla Coalition started in 2010, building on activism starting in 2008. International activists have sent 35 boats to Gaza, and the first five got through as international peace delegations and goodwill delegations protesting the siege of Gaza after Israel pulled settlers out of Gaza in a sort of trade-off for a massive, another surge in settlement in the West Bank. Gaza remained uh, very much under control of Israel as a sort of open-air prison. I can talk about the deteriorating situation there, but it was in a bombardment, regular, where we were subjecting, Israel subjects uh, Gaza to regular uh, periods of aerial bombardment, which military planners there plausibly refer to pretty openly as a mowing the lawn strategy. Every few years, intensive aerial bombardment of the civilian population there, which is the size of four Manhattans, two million people, there is no room for military bases and no no infrastructure for them. So it's massive bombardments of civilian areas uh, with the excuse that the Army didn't put itself out on a hill with a, uh, a red target painted around it, and so it's okay to bomb civilian areas massively. It was uh, December 2008, December 27th, uh, they started a bombing campaign that killed 1,400 Palestinians uh, in response to rockets that killed three Israelis, one of them for a heart attack while they were moving into a bomb shelter. And we were protesting Obama at the time, or, or protesting the stated policies, the likely policies of the Obama administration, and asking him to stick uh, more to his campaign promises of change from uh, the policies of the uh, Bush administration. And uh, this bombing started. Kathy headed out to Gaza as a, as a peace activist. A few days into the bombing, uh, Israel rammed its first ship. The, our sixth boat, uh, the Freedom Flotilla's sixth boat, was rammed by an Israeli ship, and uh, none of the boats sent, none of the, the, the 29 boats since have managed to get into Gaza. They've been seized in international, generally in international waters, I think all of them international waters, raided, confiscated some of the ships and some of the cargoes have been given back. Some of them have just been seized on no pretext. The uh, crews have been arrested. 
in 2010, the first official Freedom Flotilla, and uh, one of the ships, the Mavi Marmara, a Turkish ship full of Turkish activists, was fired on uh, by helicopters, as we understand, prior to any uh, troop boarding, as the uh, the activists rightly considered that they were that there was an attempt to it was an assassination attack. Uh, some of the activists tried to defend themselves with makeshift weapons. Israel filmed that. And the subsequent executions on the ship, along with the building, were sold as PR as self-defense of the troops, to arm troops against peace activists traveling on a ship and trying to fight back <laughs> against uh, apparently some of the ten people who were ten activists who were killed. Uh, one died in hospital. Uh, were killed execution style, and one of those was a Turkish American uh, dual citizen named uh, Furkan Dogan. Some of the other ships on the uh, flotilla were seized. And one of my, uh, one of uh, the the people participating in the event in Chicago this July was on the Challenger One, which was uh, which was the American ship, I believe. Have you been on any of those flotillas? I have not. Kathy Kelly from our group yes. um, has been to Gaza several times, I believe, and um, she was on the next year sailing on the, the ship, the Audacity of Hope. Again, calling on on the, the tone of President Obama's election campaign and, and asking to fulfill that with a less violent foreign policy. Very frightened for her considering the attacks on the previous flotilla. Yes. When did the North American flotilla first set sail? Well, has it set sail yet? This year, the U.S. boat to Gaza, which is a subdivision of the Freedom Flotilla, is conducting a North American flotilla campaign, which is PR for the, uh, the Gazan uh, flotillas that will resume next year. Um, but this year, they're going to American sites. And we were happy to help uh, the U.S. Boat to Gaza campaign uh, with their Chicago event. This will be on July 20th when we'll have a flotilla of kayaks on the Chicago River, hopefully getting some public attention for the task and support for the task of the Freedom Flotilla. We will have educational events and protests leading up to that um, on July 18th, which is a Thursday. We will at 7 p.m. at Grace Episcopal Church, 637 South Dearborn. We will have a speaking event with uh, retired Colonel Ann Wright, who's been on, I think, five of the flotillas or has helped organize five of them. She was there um, in 2010 uh, on the Challenger uh, when it was raided. Um, and she uh, retired. She was an uh, uh, American diplomat and before that a soldier. She uh, resigned in protest at the uh, March 2003 invasion of Iraq and has been a tireless activist since. And she'll be returning from Europe uh, from a, a one-week, I think, forum, one, a one-week action on uh, denuclearization, along with Brian Terrell, one of our activists, who will be there as well, in order to participate in the uh, in the July flotilla here in Chicago. I should say here in Chicago. I'm, I'm calling from New York. How many boats are you hoping to get on the river? We are debating feasibility in terms of, uh, in terms of clogging up the Chicago River right now. So I'm not certain, but we are eager for participants either to come with uh, to come rent kayaks or bring kayaks, or to uh, we're, we're renting a larger boat uh, to support uh, uh, the kayak sailors, and also we'll need people on the bridges to tell folks what the boats are doing down there. So we are arranging housing now and uh, and continuing to work on logistics uh, for the largest protest we can feasibly handle. Uh, and we're looking for people with some experience for navigating waterways that are as busy as the Chicago River uh, near the tourist centers downtown. So we're eager for folks to contact us if they're interested in coming to Chicago or if they're already there. And I can give you our, our website is vcnv.org. 
Um, and our phone number is US 773-878-1979. I just gave out my home number. Can we get at that? It's 773-878-3815. That was my old home number. Are there any Palestinians with your group? I should have said, um, uh, speaking alongside Colonel Ann Wright, is scholar activist uh, Jihad Abu Salim, who is a Gazan and has been uh, on speaking and education tours around the country with the American Friends Service Committee, and uh, we'll be very honored to have him on the stage with uh, Ann Wright, uh, talking about the deteriorating situation in Gaza. Again, Gaza is the third uh, most densely populated polity in the world right now. It's two million people living in extreme poverty on uh, a tiny area, again, four times the size of Manhattan, uh, walled in by the dictatorship in Egypt, cooperating with the apartheid regime. It has to be called that in Israel. A recent UN report said simply based on water quality, uh, which actually can't benefit from regular massive bombardments every few years, and from restrictions on supplies entering Gaza that include uh, a crippling embargo on supplies needed for water purification, uh, that Gaza will become uninhabitable uh, by next year, uh, if it isn't already. I, uninhabitable is a relative term. Uh, people in Gaza are living with no hope in a fairly hellish situation now. Since uh, 2008, since that uh, Operation Cast Lead attack, which killed maybe 1,400 Palestinians, as I said before, some of the uh, Israeli organ human rights organization, B'Tselem, I think that means in God's image, reports that some 3,500 Palestinians have been killed by Israelis, with uh, some 180 Israelis killed by Palestinians. The press here reports every attack by Palestinians as unprovoked, and every massive slaughter of Palestinians by Israelis as a response, which is madness. Uh, we're a nonviolent organization, uh, Voices is, but we recognize that uh, it cannot be, be the allies, the patrons of a country regularly massacring a civilian population can't effectively criticize members of that population for resisting militarily. We can criticize the U.S. and the Israel and its American boss much more harshly than we can criticize Palestinian militants if we're going to take violence seriously and violence against civilians seriously. And we can look at the moat in our own eye, sorry, the beam in our own eye um, and at the moat in Palestine. The U.S. is not ma managing a peace process between Israel and Palestine and never has because we are on the side of one side of that conflict which is uh, a bit more than a, a conflict. It's a sustained campaign of oppression and, uh, and, and racial segregation with regular um, incursions into Gaza and into the West Bank uh, with the restrictions of freedom of movement, with uh, crippling sanctions upon the economy and crippling embargo on the economy and regular aerial bombardments using U.S. weapons. And one of the protest sites we're, we're considering for this three day, these three days of actions is Boeing headquarters, which is implicated in Israeli atrocities in Gaza and is located in our hometown of Chicago. So we're going to consider that very much. We want to connect the dots for people, and that will very much be a target of our indignation. Is there other targets as well? We are considering other sites for protests, and we're working on the logistics of that. There's an Israeli embassy and, of course, a federal building downtown. We're looking at logistics of what will best get our message across. 
Well, you're pointing out that this summer the messages for the people of the United States have also said that the media is so biased against Palestinians. How much do you believe the, the, the ordinary people in America know about what is happening or that it's just a completely biased view that they have? There's no other way you don't see to get that message through. Well, they're receiving a, a, a steady stream of bias on behalf of Israel, and they receive a steady stream of bias on behalf of most client states that are integral to U.S. foreign policy. Our media is very well programmed. They, they've all fought hard to get where they are, and they fought hard to get where they are by pleasing their bosses. And their bosses are, are mega corporations enmeshed with the American system and allied with the American system. So in many ways, reporters who don't think that they are operating, that, that they are stenographers for, uh, for the State Department and for the goals of the elites that make U.S. foreign policy, are going to be uh, issuing massively biased information to the public. When presented with the case of peace for uh, Israel-Palestine, uh, Americans have, I, I would say, consistently polled for treating both sides equally. I can't say the recent polls. I, I, they have occasionally polled on treating both sides equally, and I, I don't think they understand the disparity between the amount of violence being dished out by Israel and the amount of violence, the only violence they tend to hear about. They never hear about Israeli violence in isolation. It's always Palestinians attacked and there was a response. But I don't think they're getting the idea of how overwhelmingly much, not all the violence, but nearly all the violence, is on the Israeli side, which means the U.S. side. There is a, a strong Israel lobby, which should, should be pointed out, is largely, I think, mostly funded by evangelical Christians who see Israel as a symbol for biblical revelation and for the importance of their own groups in U.S. policy because of the role of Israel in biblical prophecy. That's not a, a pro-Israeli position because the biblical prophecy doesn't, doesn't have nice things uh, slated to happen for Israel after it, it achieves certain tasks to prepare for the for some sort of uh, uh, some sort of apocalypse and uh, so it's a very odd thing that an Israel lobby focused on quieting debate about this topic is uh, largely run by anti-Semites working in alliance with uh, with people with uh, a heavy symbolic investment in seeing Israel crush its enemies simply on the grounds that Israel seems a very uh, cosmopolitan country ringed around by people of uh, the cliche is, is, is a sort of New York being uh, surrounded by and menaced by fundamentalists. And so liberals have a strong attachment, just as conservative Christians do, to Israel and a strong, they seem strong bias against the Palestinian side. And we've got to turn people back to the best of their traditions, toward a respect for democracy um, on all sides and a respect for peace that both sides profess and should learn to, uh, to, learn to better adhere to. We should find ways to respect the rights of Palestinians, which doesn't require us to lose any respect for the rights of, of Israelis, whose government happens to be a fairly wild and pernicious aggressor in this. It's, again, it's odd to call it a conflict when it's a bit like shooting fish in a barrel. Is there any joy in Congress? Are there any people supporting Palestine in Congress at the moment? And thanks to the resistance to Trump, and in thanks to a growing sense of political activism in the country, we've seen some very bold Congress people entering who are willing to challenge uh, 
willing to challenge the, the, the incredible electoral hurdles of campaigning against the Israel lobby, which does focus on taking down uh, critics of Israel. I, I happen to think you can have critics of any number of U.S. wars, and uh, it, it won't necessarily change the policy. The interests of, well, the interests of America's business elite, the interests of American money and of American dominance want us to be at war. You saw um, the Iraq war and the Afghan wars turn very unpopular here, and the Afghan war is still going on. The Iraq war is still going on for all the mission accomplished announcements. If to the extent that we've pulled out, it's because of the Iraqi resistance proved too effective and not so much that American resistance did. So uh, it, it's hard to say that the, the Israel lobby does anything to drive the policy, but it certainly cleaned up after the policy uh, until now in, in silencing a lot of critics. You've seen, oh my God, why am I blanking? Ilhan Omar um, is one of the new crop of Congress people who've taken a lot of heat um, and seemingly withstood it for criticizing Israel and for criticizing the uh, sort of supine adherence to the U.S. government's policy on Israel. She's taken a lot of heat. She's part of a, she seems to be part of a, a movement, including other candidates. I, I said endorse voices isn't endorsing any candidates but uh, a movement to allow a wider range of debate in Congress. I can certainly speak with fierce admiration of Representative, uh, of Representative Omar on that topic. She's not the only voice speaking out and refusing to be silenced. I'm not sure whether you're aware or not, but the situation you've talked about with the, the media and big business and all of that, and, and also the Congress, it is so similar to what happens here in Australia. Yeah, we've been hearing... and. One of the most alarming developments, of course, is the imprisonment of Australian-born journalist uh, Julian Assange in Britain pending extradition to the United States. Right now, off and on, the only charge that, that he seems to be, uh, the only crime he's been charged for, um, since n none of the, the allegations coming, I think they've just been, that investigation has been open for a third time. None of the allegations coming out of, uh, uh, coming out of Sweden, which seemed to so many to be a ploy to extradite into the U.S., they not only seem to be necessary as a, as a pretext for Britain to extradite him to the U.S. now under, I believe, the Espionage Act, basically for the crime of journalism, for the crime of receiving leaked documents uh, from Chelsea Manning, who is once again in prison, and attempting to get this, uh, this Australian journalist, the Australian government has done nothing to defend to get him in prison. Uh, now they're saying it'll be for a five-year term, but once they get him here, they can charge him with anything they like. We're hoping that Britain has the respect for democracy needed to extradite him. We hope that the uh, domestic so-called res resistance to Trump will have uh, the courage to actually support Julian Assange and not Trump in this particular case of journalistic freedom. We're hoping that the American press will rediscover journalistic traditions uh, involved in protecting uh, whistleblowers and publishers. They themselves have massively quoted from prosecution for the very new stories he handed over to them. And uh, we're wondering if that will happen or whether the U.S. will become significantly more pro-war and significantly more monolithic in the nature of, it, of its journalism. Uh, and uh, I hope that uh, Australian press is more diverse than the press, the opinions expressed in our press. We remark that the Israeli press uh, has a lot more dissent of the U.S. foreign policy, including U.S.-Israel policy, than the U.S. press does. And uh, we would like America to discover real resistance uh, to power instead of uh, uh, picking one or the other one, one or the other bipartisan opponents to cheer uncritically 
because we should actually care about these principles and not just uh, and and not just red team or blue team. People above all, for the sake of the honor of the United States and for the sake of the justice of justice worldwide, and for the sake of the spirit of uh, the spirit of justice and love of freedom that could bring us uh, victories against our own elites here and bring us democratic reforms here. People need to turn um, against war and to turn against the United States empire and support for rather horrible quiet states, uh, including Israel and Saudi Arabia, currently so closely allied with its own, its own policies in the Middle East. If we're averting an Iran war, we have to stop listening to these two clients. But above all, we have to stop listening to elites in our own country who are the main decider, who seem to want any resistance to U.S. control of the world's supply of oil smashed. Uh, the Iran war that's brewing uh, may turn out to be the greatest crime of the Trump administration. And yet uh, everyone here seems to be focused on Stormy Daniels and on apparently fictional uh, U.S. support for the regime of Vladimir Putin in Russia, which if you look at the number of proxy wars we're fighting against Russia in Ukraine, in Syria, seem to be in Venezuela, in Iran, becomes a particularly ridiculous distraction from Trump's actually, uh, he's not a beastnik, it's actually pro-war policies of Donald Trump that uh, we wish uh, mainstream critics, his mainstream critics and, uh, and opponents like Joe Biden could bring themselves to be against. The Yemen massacre, we've also been very busy in protesting. Here, and we've been supporting allies that have won some near legislative victories or some, some legislative victories that still aren't going to, aren't going to end the, the massacre and starvation at Yemen until we can actually force the president, the administration, to stop arms deals and rein in our Saudi client. A lot of similarities there between Saudi Arabia and Israel. As clients that uh, we can blame for, we, we can't control them, of course we can. We can say, listen, we're going to cut off these cut off arms if you don't start respecting the rights of your neighbours. Not only the cost of the people who are the focus of these wars, but it's the cost to the American people of all those funds and monies and bases and everything, that that, that money should be going to the people, the schools, for hospitals. That's, that's certainly worth trying if we can persuade if ethics and compassion. can't persuade the American people. Self-interest also should. It's a question whether the American people are winners on any of this. How are they supposed to challenge U.S. elites, U.S. corporations, other folks that screw them over every day? If these elites are their allies in beating up weaker people around the world, that's a tension. Whether U.S. people are so devoted to their feeling of victory over over, and I don't think they are. Uh, in, in U.S. polls, uh, people say they want to be a leader in the world, but not the leader of the world. They want to be, they want to have a role um, in world crises, but they don't want to have the role in world crises. A lot of people, people will poll uh, a lot more than you'll hear in the press when they are asked, which is infrequent. People say they, I think, continue to say that they want the U.N. and not the U.S to handle international crises. And if they were made aware of how undemocratic in its structure the UN is, I would expect, I would hope, that uh, Americans would want to see the General Assembly take, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm going speculatively here, I, I'm just, I'm pointing out my awareness that the UN can be an instrument of people on the Security Council far more than uh, the majority of nations which aren't on the Security Council and all just in the General Assembly. So that's, I'm sorry, that's a digression. I, don't know when Americans turn to their better selves. I think that they're on the side of justice and of and of uh, beleaguered people everywhere. But they're easy to turn using fear and too often using pride. 
uh, towards a position of, of unapologetic strength for America and a position of dominance over the world. That's the good angel and bad angel sitting on all of our shoulders, I guess. And we have to decide whether we can survive in a world where we have broken the mold of justice and we have done our best to degrade respect for human rights in favor of the exercise of power. Someday that power will be turned on us. And we should ask whether everyone else in the world is a, is a monster who already despises human rights or whether there's the danger that we're teaching them to by our example and that they are otherwise decent people. Dr. King said it a, a year before he died in 67, injected the, uh, the veins of, of, of people normally humane, injected with poisonous drugs of hate through our process of starting wars overseas. And uh, isn't it time with the problems faced by our species, climate change, the never-diminished threat of nuclear weapons, and we have uh, our friends who are waiting to see the trial of our friends, the Kings Bay Plowshares, seven Catholic activists arrested last April on a nuclear missile base, uh, a nuclear submarine base, a nuclear missile armed submarine base in Georgia for a symbolic act of, of vandalism, of beating swords into plowshares. And they're awaiting serious charges trying to rekindle uh, an anti-nuclear movement, which many of us see as still a last-ditch movement for human survival in the face of a threat which a lot of people I talk to seem to think has gone away when uh, the folks who manage the nuclear clock, I don't have the name nuclear scientist, please, please forgive my, forgive my ignorance right now. Well, we're, I think we're marked down as closer, quite reasonably, as closer to nuclear Armageddon than we've been since the height of the Cold War. Quite reasonable with a sort of focus uh, from critics of Trump on making sure that if uh, another missile crisis arises, say, in our our competing military campaigns in Syria or in the, uh, the, the civil war in Ukraine. If we get to another Cuban missile crisis, uh, it seems like the entire political establishment critical of, uh, of Trump will want him not to negotiate, which is a bizarre direction to try to push an already terribly warlike and one might even say murderous president towards uh, even more reckless international policies. And we have to see if an anti-war movement will arise in the United States while there still is one. Well, all I can say, Sean, is I hope it goes really well for you between the 18th and the 20th. And maybe I could talk to you after the events and to see how you all went. We would love that. And, uh, and greetings to all of your listeners. And thank you for everything you will do between now and then for the cause of peace. It's a joy to be serving a future whether or not we get there. We should put our hopes in the future. And because that's someplace we can get to. Thank you, Sean. And it's Sean Reardon from Voices for Creative Nonviolence, based in Chicago, talking about many things to do with peace. Well, that's all I have for today. But Dunbar Law will be here in about one minute's time. So I'll go out with just another message about the Radiothon, which actually starts next Monday with the non-English speaking programs but in a week's time after that it'll be time for us on Tuesday home time and so I hope that you'll all be listening that day and contribute to the wonderful radio station that you listen to so I'll say bye for now and listen for Done By Law The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. 
And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019... June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. Thank you.